Welcome to Beyond the Summit, Trinity College's podcast that looks at accomplished alumni and asks them how they became who they are. Welcome to our second season, where we're spending time talking with alumni who've devoted their post-college career to serving and helping others. I'm your host, Paul Sullivan, Trinity Class of 1995. With me today is Chris Hatch, Class of 1980. Chris is a chief executive of Food Banks Canada, a network of food banks that includes over 3,000 community agencies. He was recently appointed to the Canadian Food Policy Advisory Council, which will provide a critical forum to engage food, community, and agriculture leaders on how to collectively build a better food system for all Canadians. Chris has a significant hands-on food banking experience, including leadership roles at the Mississauga Food Bank, which I've surely uh, mispronounced, as executive director and board chair. He's also a past board chair of the Ontario Association of Food Banks. Yet, this Boston-born bando began with a far more traditional corporate path out of Trinity when he went into consulting. His career certainly shows the value of a liberal arts education that allows you to pivot to a completely different industry. Welcome to Beyond the Summit, Chris. Hi, Paul. Thank you for having me. There's so much I want to talk to you about. Uh, Let's start with the essential first question. Uh, If I did my research correctly, you've lived in Canada since 1996, but you're from from Boston. I'm a seventh-generation Bostonian, actually. (laughs) So So here's a question, Chris. Do you still root for the Red Sox or have you become a Toronto Blue Jays fan? Well, actually, I have to tell you, I'm still, I'm still a New England Patriots fan. I'm a Red Sox fan uh, and uh, I'm a Bruins fan. Now, there's no problem with being a, a Red Sox fan or a Patriots fan, but when you become a Bruins fan, they take that very seriously up here in Canada when you root for the other hockey team. So it gets a bit ugly, especially during, uh, for example, Stanley Cup playoff games and so forth. So, you know, I've kept the, uh, the home colors. Uh, it gets a bit tough during the Olympics when you're rooting for countries uh, in terms of which side, which side you're on. But I've stuck with the uh, stuck with the New England uh, sports teams uh, up up from now, Paul. But but are you that Boston fan that shows up in the Bruins jersey even though they're two totally different teams playing the hockey game? <laughs> I do. Sometimes I take my life into my hands when I wear my Bruins uh, hat, which someone sent me when I walk around the streets of Toronto. It's uh, you take your life in your own hands. They take it as I say. They take hockey very seriously, as you as you know. So seventh generation Bostonian, uh, t- tell me a bit about, you know, your, your, your childhood, about when you're growing up, you know, what were you interested? What, what did you like doing when you were a kid growing up in Boston? So I grew up in the suburbs of Boston. I grew up in Needham, uh, which is a suburb of Boston. Um, and my, my, my family, my ancestry is from, uh, South shore of Boston, so down in the Marshfield area, uh, is where we're from. And I had sort of very traditional, uh, suburban uh, upbringing. I had a, I have a, I'm the oldest of three children. I have a younger brother and sister. You know, we did little league baseball. We did Boy Scouts. Uh, went went to school. Uh, and my father was a, a local city councilor or a selectman, so he's very active, very active in, in civics. And uh, probably where I got some of my interest in, in giving back to the communities was my dad was uh, was on 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 different boards of directors on the board of the uh, for the blind. He was very involved in animal. He was a chair of the board of the Animal Rescue League in Boston. So. So I probably picked up some of that civic responsibility at, at a very young age. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're growing up in the 1970s, you're coming of age in the 1970s and you show up uh, at Trinity in, in 1976. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. What, what brought you to Trinity of all the schools you could have gone to? How did you choose Trinity? How did you choose to make that, that, that trip from Boston to, to Hartford? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, um, at that time, so it goes back a few years, I was looking for a liberal arts school, number one. Uh, and number two, I was looking for a smaller school. I didn't want to go to a big, huge university. I wanted, I wanted a more, I'm going to call it more intimate uh, university college experience. Uh, and I found that at Trinity, a smaller classroom, you got to know the professor, you weren't passed off to a teaching assistant. So, um, and stayed within New England. So uh, it, that sort of fit the bill and, and the reputation of Trinity College. And so it all worked out well. And I was pleased to be offered, offered admission to Trinity College and uh, joined in 1976. What'd you major in? Uh, psychology. Uh, when you think back, uh, there's so much, there's so many things I can go uh, there with the psychology major who's the Bruins fan living in Canada for you know better part of 25 years. Um, but when you look back, you know, how did you select that major? You know, what were some of the classes that, that, you know, that stand out that, that really shaped, you know, your, your, your uh, mind? Well, I, 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 I love majoring in psychology and the, the one class, Paul, that I think about all the time, even to the day, is we had we had rats. We had actually a rat laboratory where I mean, actually I, I was responsible for taking care of the rat laboratory, and it was a neurology, uh, you know, neurophysiology class about uh, the brain, and we had to actually uh, take the rat and we had to put the rat to sleep and do uh, surgery on on the rat and implant an electrode into the rat's brain in a certain location, and they had to if you were successful the the rat woke up, uh, you know, from the surgery. That was that's a hard part of it. It did all sorts of ex- all sorts of experiments. So it was the most fascinating course I've ever had. It was probably because it was so hands-on. Uh, you know, work, working in the in the rat lab and Skinner box and learning about reward pathways and how to train how to train the rat. And uh, so that was that was my most memorable uh, class in terms of my uh, my psychology degree. The other class, which and then just for variety, I took a class in religion just to kind of break it up and. Uh, it was a very, it was just a great change of pace. It was a different kind of a class all ent- entirely. Great professor, uh, and so that was a, that was another memorable class outside of outside of the psychology major. When you look back on that that neurology class, when you're thinking about the rats, I mean, that sounds fascinating. But it also sounds very binary. Like you said, either the rat wakes up or or he doesn't. Um, but were there lessons that you, you know, obviously it's very interesting, but were there lessons that you, you took with it? You said it was very hands-on. I mean, is that, is that something that you've sort of brought with you in your, your various careers? Well, I think in that for sure. I mean, cause it wasn't sitting in a classroom or a lecture hall. You're actually, you know, you have to take care of the animal. You have to look after the animal's well-being. you know, and you know, the rat, you know, after certain, I mean, doing, you learn that doing surgery itself is complicated in terms of, you know, putting the rat to sleep and making sure the rat wakes up and making sure the rat's healthy. Uh, you know, and you, you know, you bond with a rat, you know, because this is a rat you, you're responsible for. Uh, so, yeah, it was just a great, just a great hands, hands-on experience. It was very different than the other, a lot of the other courses and classes I took uh, at Trinity, which I'm going to call more traditional classes. Tell me a bit about, you know, your, your, your four years at, at the college, you know. Tell me about some of the professors that stood out. Tell me about some of your friends. What did you do when you were, you know, outside of uh, the classroom? So, I mean, I mean, a couple of things. So I joined the rugby team. Uh, I thought, you know what? I've never played rugby before. I don't know anything about rugby. And they were calling for volunteers to play rugby in the, in the Trinity rugby team. And I go, well, I'll give it a try. And I uh, actually took a liking to it. Ended up, ended up playing uh, at, at Trinity. And then, I took, and then another highlight of my Trinity career was I did a third year abroad. I went over to Vienna uh, to go to school over in Austria. And I remember landing in Austria in, in August, the beginning of the year, 
not speaking a single word of German. I didn't know a single word of German. And talk about risk-taking as I look back upon my younger life, you know, going to Vienna and ended up thinking the entire year, I was supposed to be there for one semester, really liked it. And again, studied psychology and a great place to study psychology. That's where Freud is from and all the other grandfathers of psychology. Stayed the whole year and ended up, ended up playing rugby for Austria. So I ended up playing rugby for the Austrian team, tried out and toured with the Austrian team for a year. And uh, we played in Italy and former, former Czechoslovakia. We played in Hungary. Uh, we played in former Yugoslavia. So we just had a great experience and, and, uh, and a great time and, and also had a great time at school there going to university uh, all year over in Vienna. So, uh, and I, I had great, great roommates uh, at Trinity College. Some of them also played rugby with me. So that's some of the, some of the things I look back on fondly uh, on my Trinity days. So when you said you played for the Austrian team, do you mean like the Austrian national team and you were going? Yeah, the Austrian national team, they, they did a call, uh, a recruit and went and made the team and played, played every game for the whole year. And uh, again, Got to travel behind the Iron Curtain. I go, I'm dating myself, Paul, because I mean, this is where the Iron Curtain was up. So we played, you know, in communist, communist Czechoslovakia and, and Yugoslavia and so forth. So I got to see parts of the world that were fascinating, meet rugby players from around the world. And so, yes, we played, we played, uh, it was a very high level of rugby. You had to become very fit. You know, my, my coach was, uh, uh, and captain was a, a, a guy from Scotland. So a very, very strict on, on regiment and fitness. And so, yeah, it was, it was a quite, quite an experience, actually. And then came back and played at Trinity my last year at Trinity. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm sort of speechless here. This is a, a story I didn't expect to hear. I mean, did you learn sort of rugby German? How did, how did your rugby German, uh, you know, progress over that time? It's a, great, it's a great question. My team was made up of international players from all over the world. As I said, my, my, my coach was from Scotland. I think we spoke seven languages on the team. And so uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the refereeing was done actually with, with hand gestures, uh, in some cases, we had to bring translators with us. So we went to, for example, played played in Budapest. When we played in Hungary. It's a very it's a very difficult language. We had to bring a translator with us to translate for us. You know, pre-game, during the game, post-game, the social events, and so forth. So uh, we were a multi multilingual team. I, I could talk about this the whole time, but but we have other <laughs> stuff to cover here. Um, you know. There you go. You know, you've had two careers, you know, first as a consultant uh, out of college and, and, you know, the past decade plus uh, as a food bank executive. Um, Tell me about, you know, what you thought you wanted to do or what you, you know, did when you left Trinity and why you did that. And and then we'll kind of go in later as to how how you change careers. So when I'm wrapping up my four years at Trinity, I really, I I really like business. I have, I still have a, a business sense as well, Paul. I thought, how can I combine my psychology degree and my psychology interest with my interest in business? And lo and behold, there's this, there's this field of science called industrial organizational psychology. So I applied to graduate school out of Trinity College to a variety of graduate schools and was accepted at the University of Southern Illinois on a full scholarship, actually. And so I went to the University of Southern Illinois for two years for a full master's degree in industrial organizational psychology which was a blend of MBA courses and then psychology, uh, graduate level psychology courses, uh, a lot of math, statistics, and so forth. And that, that's what led me to get into consulting. That, and I went from there and, okay, how do I, how do I turn this into a job? And uh, it, it led me to H, HR consulting. And I was hired by one of the top you know, global consulting firms at the time uh, in, back in Boston, uh, outside of Boston, and worked there for six years and then recruited to another uh, global consulting firm uh, with 
took on more responsibility. And then I was recruited to a third consulting firm, took even on more responsibility. And the third consulting firm is the one that asked me if I wanted to go to Canada on a three-year assignment to run the Canadian division, if you will. Uh, and I said, sure. And I, my children at the time were 10, 8, 6, and 4. I go, what a great experience. We'll live in another country. And that's when we moved to Canada back in 1996. And so that's the path. When you moved to Canada, where, where did you move to? We moved to Toronto. We just we live right outside Toronto. And you're right. You did a great job. You pronounced it ap- ap- absolutely correctly. It's Mississauga. So it's a, it's a, ma- it's a major community, uh, a, a bedroom community of Toronto. And that's where we ended up on a three-year on a three-year posting. Um, and then the kids and and at the time said, Dad, we don't want to go home. We love it up here in Canada. And we fell in love with it. And, and my wife fell in love with it. And uh, we just we decided to take up citizenship and go through the very long uh, process of becoming becoming a dual citizen. It's, it's a very long road. So so now, in addition to rugby German, do you also speak uh, French as well? Is that part of becoming a Canadian citizen? Well, I'm embarrassed to say, Paul, my Spanish is better than my French and my German is better than my French. And uh, I, I probably should speak French, but I don't. Um, I have on my staff, actually at Food Base Canada, I have, a, I have a staff of four or five that are fluently bilingual. And so everything we do has to be translated. So we have a full translation uh, service we rely on for translating everything that, that we do. So no, I'm embarrassed to say my French is not good. I haven't had to use French. I rely on other people to do French uh, interviews and so forth when, when it's required. Uh, but it, my German is not back from living in Austria, but it's just that was such a long time ago. Well, you know, what stuck out to you being a consultant? What What were the things that you 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 really enjoyed that kept you know propelling you forward from from one consulting firm to to another and ultimately to to Toronto? Yeah, I think consulting is a very it's a it's a it's a stressful career, but it's a fun career. You're always selling your next project, so you're always on the always on the hunt because you're working for a consulting firm. And you're only as good as your next uh, your next project and how many billable hours you have, and so you're always always on the sell. And you're selling something that's intangible. You're not selling shoes or cars or houses. You're selling you're selling concept ideas, um, and that's a that's a that's a higher level. It's a hard sell. And if you can sell that, you can sell most anything. Is what I learned. Um, and so the sell, I like the I like the pursuit, I like the hunt, I like the competition of selling. It's always in a competitive environment for most cases. But then actually doing the work. I mean, solving complex problems. You know, consultants are usually brought in when things are bad. Uh, you know, it's like a doctor when the patient's really sick. Let's call him the consultant. And so your your delta your delta deck of cars sometimes is not not pretty. And you're solving complex problems that are politically charged problems. Uh, you're coming up with recommendations. You're having to sell your ideas, sell your solutions back to to the client, to the board, or to the senior management. So that was all very challenging and and fun. And you know, sometimes you don't know what you're going to get when you walk into walk into a room. So the unknown, always having to be kind of be very flexible. Uh, uh, you know, is, is, I find find fun. And so uh, yeah, I was I was in consulting for 25 years, high paced. You're constantly with very bright people, thinking of new ideas, new concepts. Uh, and bringing bringing them to clients uh, that you that you work for. Yeah, you know, if, if I did my research correctly, and if if you know my my math is solid, you know, you you, you moved to Toronto '96, um, but you left consulting in 2005 when you would have been in your your late 40s. So, what prompted you to to take a break from the world of consulting? What well, an opportunity! It was uh, I was tired, I was burnt out, if you will, and had a chance to. Uh, cash out, so to speak. And so uh, I left and did something very unusual, Paul. Uh, you're going to find this interesting. My 
wife uh, at the time, uh, my first wife, went back to graduate school. So I became a full-time stay-at-home dad with teenagers and kids, uh, four kids and a dog. So I was I was responsible for all the you know, carpooling, dental appointments, music lessons, shopping, cleaning, laundry. Uh, and so it was such a shift. It was such a great breath of fresh air to go from the corporate fast-paced world, living on airplanes and traveling all over the world, really, to being home with the kids, if you will, for a couple of years. So, so that's when I transitioned. I started, then I started volunteering at the local food bank. In Mississauga. I, I want to, before you get to the food yeah. bank, I want to I unpack this because I think if there was ever a, a realm where your HR consulting skills came in, it was probably, you know, managing a household of, of teenagers. Did, did you ever have to write any of them up? Did you ever put them on warning or probation or anything like that? It wasn't so much that, Paul, but you do have to have organizational skills. It's like, you know, who's got to be where, what, what time's the next appointment? What's, Who's got, who's got to be in the carpool? Am I picking up today? Am I dropping off today? So your, so your organizational skills, you know, project management planning has got to be really, really astute. To, 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 I have a real appreciation for people who run households with four kids running around. So, so uh, yeah, it was more, it was more of that than anything else. <clears throat> and then your, your entry into the, um, to the food bank world began as uh, a volunteer. Is, it, is that correct? Yeah. That's right. Me, started, yeah. yeah started, started. How, how'd you decide to volunteer? Well, my next door neighbor was the head of the food bank. He said, you should come by and volunteer at the food bank. So I went one day and I was my first time walking into the food bank, the city's food bank, and I was blown away by how big it was. I just had no idea the level of food bank use or people needing food. I just, you know, I, I, I probably lived in a different world, didn't think it was that big of a need. It was huge. And so I got involved and started volunteering there uh, during the week at nights after I finished my, my duties at home. It was my, it was actually my, uh, my relief from home duties to go out at night and, and do some volunteering. Then we go out with the volunteers, have a few beers afterwards and unwind. And next thing I know, I was being asked if I wanted to join the board. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. I'll join the board. And so I joined the board and I really enjoyed that. And next thing I know, they said, uh, you know, we, 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 we want you, we want to terminate the executive director. And so you need to terminate the executive director. So we terminate the executive director. And I thought, well, I might as well, I'll apply for the job. I mean, why not see what happens? I throw my name in the hat. And I got hired as executive director of the food bank. I turned it around. It was, it was in pretty bad shape. It was like a consulting project. It was, it was almost bankrupt. It had no branding, had no recognition, uh, operationally poorly run. I didn't know the first thing about running a warehouse, running trucks, running you know, warehousing systems, inventory systems. But I learned. I learned quickly. And uh, ran ran the ran the food bank, and it's one of the better performing food banks in the country. And then uh, fast forward to almost four years ago, the search firm called and said, "Do you want to? Would you consider applying to be the CEO of the National Food Banking Operation?" I thought, yeah. I said, "Sure, I'll I'll apply for it." Next thing you know, I was hired, and here's where I am. So I've gone from being a volunteer at the food bank in 2005 to being the CEO of Food Banks Canada and and representing us on the global stage. I mean. We have a seat at the worldwide food banking stage as well, so so that's that's where I where I find myself today. This is fascinating. Let's unpack some of that and, and back sure. up a little bit. And so, when you go to the local food bank, you know, in, in the suburb of Toronto, and you said it's you know it's almost bankrupt, doesn't have any branding. That's a, you know real a corporate mindset. Um, and I know you've said this in other uh, interviews you've done that you know sometimes you believe that that corporate mindset is really important that business background is really important for a nonprofit. So how, what, you know, tell me how you tackled the issues right. that you saw at that food bank and how did you, 
you know, brand it to, you know, obviously increase awareness, increase donations, uh, and, and service, service more people in need. Yeah. Your, your point, your first point is a good one, Paul, that I make often is that the charitable sector can always use more people with a business background. Uh, you know, a lot of charities are run for good causes and well-meaning people, but you know, at the end of the day, there needs to be an underpinning of business. So uh, I view coming to the Mississauga Food Bank as really a, another business consulting assignment. How, how do I how do I how do I shrug this place, turn it around, make it strong? And we looked at it. I look at it from every point of view, from the HR point of view, uh, what need to be done, from the finance point of view, what need to be done, from the uh, uh, technology uh, infrastructure point of view, what need to be done. I looked at marketing, branding, uh, communications. Uh, and then, and then I got into logistics, and you know that's where I had to really learn quickly. Like, as I said, I didn't know anything about running a warehousing operation or running trucks or running logistics and so forth. So that's what we did. And if I didn't know it, I found it. I either read about it or hired somebody, and uh, just really looked at it as as a, as a kind of my own little laboratory as a turnaround project. And it was was really uh, exciting and invigorating. Uh, one of the things, the first thing I did, which was really difficult uh, as a as a task, was. The board needed to be changed. I had to go and fire people off the board. And if I, I don't think I've ever done, ever done anything so difficult as having to tell people your services are no longer required on the board. They were there, they were there for the wrong reason, they didn't have the right skills, and then and I needed to free up some space for other other skills to come on the board. So we did that. It was it, we got that done. It was it wasn't pleasant, we got that done. And we and we worked together and turned the turn the place around. Uh uh and, and just sort of short it up and hired new staff and put in proper benefits and put in proper systems and, and away, and away we went. You know, when did you know it was working and what, what was the turning point when you realized, okay, this thing is not just going to survive, but it's, it's going to be a lot better. It's, it's going to thrive from, from what it was a couple of years ago. I said, there's a couple. I mean, we, we started getting recognized by the provincial food bank association and the national food bank association. Um, they started, you know, asking us to be on national committee. So so you know, they obviously looked up to us. Um, second of all, in terms of local community, we got a lot of press, a lot of media. You know, I found myself in front of the camera a lot, in front of the newspaper a lot, working with the city council, working with the mayor. Um, so a lot of community engagement uh, that, hadn't, that hadn't happened before. And the, and the final thing, Paul, you'll laugh, because I'm gonna use this example on the panel on branding, is that, is that we saw organizations taking our, taking our brand without our permission to using it. Now we there was a, a new bank in town that you know in I opened the newspaper and there's our there's our logo saying if you come open a new bank account you know uh, we'll don't make a donation to the Mississauga Food Bank and I go who are these people and why are they using our brand and so so the fact that they were using our brand to us was flattering it showed the strength of the brand but uh, and we protected our brand very carefully you know we really took it quite seriously so it was all, all the above I mean donations started coming in we had new donors we were financially solid again. So, uh, I mean, we had the support of the community, which was, at the end of the day, if you don't have the support of the community, you're not going get to any, get anywhere as a community food bank. Yeah, I mean, and plus, you know, jokes aside, if they weren't knocking off your brand and trying to appropriate it, I mean, they're only doing that because you were doing right. uh, a, a good job. Exactly. That they, they, Good meaning. They had good meaning, but you know, it was the wrong, they used a purple color and wrong, you know, it wasn't, it was like, you know, it was like taking someone else's brand and changing the color of it and what didn't, didn't work. So we, we got it all sorted out. They, they were good. It, if you remember, and what, what, what did your kids say, say about all this? They had been used to dad being home for a little while, you know, kind of running the house. And then you, you start doing this and, and you're getting, you know, more and more recognition in this world. How did your kids <laughs> react to that? Uh, they were thrilled for me. Um, 
I think it'd be, at the beginning, Paul, they were, I'm going to call it a little embarrassed. Like, you know, you know, their kids at school would say, hey, I saw your dad on TV last night. Uh, you know, or I have people say, if I see your picture one more time in the news, newspaper, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to get that newspaper anymore hat. So you're kind of seeing your mugshot in the newspaper. So you know, people you know, at cocktail parties and functions, they say, Hatch, I'm tired of seeing you always on the on you know the radio or TV. So, well, my kids are good and they're used to it now. They they're used to seeing me on the now on uh, national national media. Uh, they're they're used to it. So they, I think I think as they got older now, they're they're more they're more they 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 have pride in what their old man does. You know, I often think about you know my time at Trinity and and the liberal arts education I got. I, I was a history major, and how that prepared me for, you know, what I would call serendipitous moments, these moments that come along where you sort of, you're just interested in something, you're an interested person, and you think, okay, I'll volunteer at the food bank. And, and then, you know, one thing, you know, leads to another, and, and next, you know, you're, you're running the local food bank, but then you get the call from, uh, you know, a search consultant to, to run the whole shebang, to, to run, you know, Food Banks Canada. And, and, that's wonderful recognition for, for what you were doing on a local level, wonderful recognition to your leadership. But, um, you know, what was your first thought when, when they asked you if you wanted to you know, throw your name in the hat to be in the running for this, you know, m- much bigger job? Obviously, it's a, a national level level job. Well, my first reaction, to be very honest, Paul, was like, I'm very happy where I am. Things are, things are firing on all eight cylinders. We've got things going exactly where we want them to go. You know, things are going great. I mean, all this sweat has paid off and things are like, I mean, you know, money's coming in. We've got, we've got, you know, staff in place. We're well-regarded. We're doing some innovative things that no one else is doing in the country and we're leading the pack and some, some innovation. So my initial reaction was like, I'm very comfortable right here where I am. Almost like I'm going to use the word complacency for lack of a better term. And then I thought, you know what, Chris, you've, you know, you've done everything you set out to do. You're leaving. If you leave, you're leaving on a high note. You know, leaving in a good spot. Why not? Why not try for? It? Why not? Why not put your name in the hat? You know, and if I don't get it, I don't get it. But uh, why not? And so I, so I went through the, uh, the interviewing process and was was offered the job. And uh, you know, and that's that's what, that's what brought me there. Sort of taking a little, taking a little bit of risk. I'm late in my career. You know, I'm like, you know, I've kind of I thought it was kind of cool. Like, what a way to end my food banking career as CEO of the national office. You know, and so that's that's why that's why I decided to put my name, throw my name in the hat, and go through the interviewing process with the board. Mm-hmm. You know, you you took that job in 2018, correct? Correct. Yeah. So it was obviously a, a different time in in the world, much different than than what we've all lived through in the past year. But if you look back to 2018, you know, what were some of the challenges that you had across the the 3,000 food banks that, that you oversaw, and and how did you help those individual food banks work through their their challenges? Well, it is a challenge because uh, the way we're structured you know, with the three thousand food banks is what we call a federated model. It's very much like how the government runs. You know, the federal government can only have so much say over the provinces, and just like I have, I only have so much say over the food banks. Um, I, I they don't report to me. Uh, I can't dictate to them. I can only influence them. I can support them. I send them money. I send them food. So we have a very, sometimes can be a strained relationship. They can tell me to go, they can say, they can ignore me and say, go do, that's great hatch, have a great day. So I can't, I can't, I, they report to their own board. Uh, they have their own, they do their own volunteers, their own staffing, their own fundraising, their own, their own bylaws. So they're independent in a way. We're a loosely knit structure. Um, 
you know, and so so that I, sometimes someone recently said, Paul, I was talking to a, a, a federal minister uh, and he said, you know, you're, you're the prime minister of food banks, Chris. And I said, I know exactly what it feels like to be the prime minister because, you know, you try to do good things and you try to do what's best for everybody. But often they're not happy. They want more. They're kicking in the shins. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a lot of flying elbows out there. And so, uh, yeah, we do the best we can to uh, keep it to, to try to play collaboratively to try to show strength in numbers, to show that, that you know that us working together is going to get us further than working separately. And so that's what we that's what we constantly do. And I my my first couple of years, Paul was living on airplanes, going around visiting the big food banks and building bridges, building relationships. Um, I, I very much like to interact face to face with people, meet their boards. And uh, my wings have been clipped in you know, the last uh, almost two years now, year and a half. And we haven't been have been able to fly anywhere. So everything's been virtual. So it's been it's been tough to try to try to maintain or build those relationships virtually. Uh, but, but we're doing a great job. It, it, you know, and, and to your point about the pandemic, I mean, we've been tested like no one's been tested in terms of this pandemic. We're the, we're the counterpart to Feeding America. You, you got a great organization, uh, Feeding America, down in down the States, and they do a great job. We, we're doing the same thing up here in Canada. And uh, the, the, community, the community has risen to the occasion. The support has been record-breaking whether it's been the federal government or the provincial government or large foundations, large global corporations, very wealthy philanthropic families have all come forward with, with a record amount of funding and support for us to be able to do what we do, do day in and day out to meet the, to meet the demand during this pandemic, which has just been horrific. And we're still not out of the woods. And so, uh, so it's been a real test of us at Food Bank Canada, but also the food banking system. And I, and I said the other day, my biggest fear was watching, you know, they're watching CNN News, watching those long lineup of cars at the food banks down in Texas. You know, I think it was San Antonio or whatever. And I go, God almighty, I hope we don't end up there in Canada. Could that be a nightmare? And so that was kept me awake at night to make sure we didn't have those kind of long lineups and and uh, the system just backing up and not fulfilling its missions. Yeah. I mean, paint a picture for us as to, you know, what it's been like the, the past year. I mean, in my mind, at least, you know, so much of a food bank model is, is bringing people in need to to where the food is. So, you know, what has happened to the service model uh, in Canada during COVID-19? How have you, you know, worked to, to help those 3,000 affiliated f- food banks? Talk to me a bit about, you know, the strategy and the challenge that you've gone through uh, over the past year. Sure. And just to put it in perspective, as I've done with all my media interviews, I remind people that even before the pandemic, we were having over a million visits a month to food banks across Canada. In the pandemic, the numbers have only surged. You know, they've been up and down like a roller coaster. So the first thing that we, the first challenge we had, which was was instant actually, was a lot of the food banks are heavily run by volunteers. And some of the food banks are entirely run by volunteers. And the, the government said, you got to stay home. And those volunteers, for the most part, Paul, are seniors. A lot of them are seniors. And they were very vulnerable at the beginning of the pandemic. And they said, you got to stay home. So we saw food bank volunteers drop off dramatically, right, right at the gate. And we had some food banks that couldn't open their doors because they didn't have anyone to run the food bank because they were run by all by volunteers or they were or they were really limited in their operation because of, because of volunteers. So that was the very first thing that hit us. And in some cases, we had to send money out to food banks for them to hire temporary staff to open their doors uh, to, to make sure we could you know, keep it open in the community. The second thing we saw was a disruption to the supply chain, which you saw in the U.S. as well. We're not unique to that in Canada. You know, with people trying to hoard, you know, trying to find toilet paper and the shelves are empty or find rice or find pasta or find some of the staples we use, the shelves were empty. And so we had to deal with 
the same supply chain challenges as everyone else did. I mean, we're trying to get food in across the border from the U.S., and there's restrictions about crossing the border. Uh, we're trying to get food coming in by ship from overseas, and the restrictions on that. And so, so we had the same challenges we had to overcome in terms of being able to do a, access food. When the demand's going up, we need we needed even more food. So the challenge was getting more food, and then when we got it, getting it shipped to where it needs to where it needs to go. So the biggest challenge for us was keeping the stocks the shelves stocked on the food banks, right? the 3,000 plus food banks across the country, because their demand was increasing, number one. And number two, their donations were going down because they couldn't do their food drives in their communities because of, of COVID. They couldn't do their fundraisers because of COVID. And so, uh, so that's where we stepped in action in terms of you know, getting money and pumping money out to them to be able to keep pay the rent and, and pay the salaries and, and so forth. And then to buy food or we ship food to them to make sure there's, there's the... Uh, Shelves were stocked, so that's really what we've been what we've been doing uh, and uh, advocating for over the last uh, year and a half now. How do you think, yeah, the experience during COVID nineteen will influence how you do your job going forward, but also how the other, you know, the three thousand food banks in Canada do their job going forward? So I think I mean, we're seeing this from the U.S. as well, but what we're seeing is a lot of the food banks pivoted. I know everyone uses the word pivot. They 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 moved quickly because of health requirements to, uh, to to delivering food to people's homes. And this is brand new. I mean, a lot of the food banks didn't do home delivery. It was like, like it was kind of unheard of. And um, and the U.S. as well, Canada. You know, a lot of the food banks went to home delivery with great success. And so I I think we're going to see that continue post pandemic. Um, it allow, and, we're, and we're seeing apps pop up that are being developed where people can actually order the food they need and making sure they get the food they need. It gets delivered at a certain time, certain delivery window. So there's safe, safe food handling. There's safe distancing in terms of the pandemic and they get food that they want. So, you know, and, and the rest of the world went to online shopping. So, so they just fits with that. So I think we're going to see that continue, Paul, in terms of uh, you know, home delivery type of a service uh, out of the food banks and the, and, and the food pantries. Um, the other one is food drives. A lot of the, a lot of the food banks did drive-through food drives. They have drive-through pickups where you can actually pick up your food in a drive-through kind of a situation, kind of like drive-through vaccination. You don't get out of your car. Uh, you, they also have food drives um, where you go, you drive in, you pop your trunk, you take the food out of your car, you keep on driving. So making it very convenient for, for people to pick up their food or to drop off food. And number two, to maintain the physical distancing, uh, the social distancing required by public health that we're under now and maybe for, for, for quite a while. And um, I think third of all, it really tested the food bank's uh, toughness. I mean, I think the food banks are proud. They, they've, they've sure met, met the challenge uh, during the peak of the pandemic. Um, and I think, I think they've shown that they can do it. Um, and so I think that's gonna help us be stronger going forward. And I think finally, um, we've shown the public. I mean, the people who finance us, the, the governments, the, the corporations, the, the uh, foundations, the philanthropists that we have taken their money, taken their food, and made good use of it. We were able to, you know, make it steward it properly, track it properly, account for it properly. You know, the auditors have been pleased. So we we, we show that we're a trusted trusted charity, uh, a trusted provider of these services. And so hopefully that will continue on. You know, we went from like ten thousand individual donors before pandemic hit to we picked up an additional hundred thousand individual donors across Canada. That we now want to keep going forward. We picked up hundreds of new corporate donors that we want to pick up going forward. And the federal government, I mean, the prime minister came forward and supported us, you know, to the tune of, you know, $90 million to, to Food Banks Canada specifically, but the food banks in general, $150 million 
his first announcement. And so, um, you know, we want to maintain that partnership, that partnership as well. So that's some of the things we've learned and we hope to see com- coming out of the pan coming out of the pandemic. When you look at your, your career now versus your, your first career, how do you define success in this career versus your, your previous one in, in consulting? You know, in the, in the corporate world and consulting, it's all about more, making more money, making more billable hours, selling, you know, it's always, you're always chasing, chasing something. Whereas in the charitable sector, you know, it is very business-like and, you know, it's a lot, there is a lot of pressure and stress. It's so much more of a, of a, you know, the passion, the good feeling you get, you know, from, you know, you're, it's a, it is a lot of responsibility for sure, but you get great feeling knowing you're helping people, helping families, helping children, helping single, single families, you know, get through a tough time. And so there's, there's an intrinsic value that we, that uh, I get from it. My colleagues get from it. that drives us forward. You know, this is not a profession you're going to get rich. You know, there's not a lot of stock options in food banking. And so, um, so you've got to, you got to drive the reward from other ways. And, and some of the, sto- the stories we see for those that work face to face with, with the clients, uh, the stories we read about uh, at Food Base Canada, they're just very heartwarming and, and moving and you're changing people's lives especially when they're in a very, very bad situation. So it's very rewarding from that, from that point of view. And I'm, I, I don't want to put you on the spot here with, with how much longer you remain the CEO, but, but when you look forward in your career, having made it through, um, for the most part, you know, COVID-19, what do you still hope to accomplish? Well, I mean, we have, we have two mandates, uh, Paul. We have a short-term mandate and we have a long-term mandate. The short-term mandate is make sure if you need food today, we've got safely delivered with dignity and, you know, the food you need, the food your family requires, it's been shipped to you and it's easy for you to come pick it up. So that's, that's dealing with a very immediate emergency food supply need today. So that's, that's our short-term mandate. And I said to you before, we have over a million people you know, a month coming to the food banks before the pandemic. On the longer term, to answer your question specifically, the term part of our mandate, which is very critical, is to put ourselves out of business. And we're going to be spending, we're going to be doing more of that going forward in terms of advocating at the federal level for policy changes. It's everything from basic income to minimum wage to uh, working conditions to try to make it so people don't have to use a food bank in the first place. And they can get a decent job, with a decent wage with benefits that they, that they, don't, have, they don't have to rely on a food bank to make ends meet at the end of the month. That's a longer term. That's a much longer term. And we've hired, we have staff. I've got staff in Ottawa. Um, I'm, I'm a registered uh, lobbyist as well. We've got staff in, in, in Ottawa working every day with the federal government. Um, and we have people working with the provincial government. To, and that change, social policy change, so that people don't have to go to a food bank. They can go to a grocery store and buy what they need with the income they, they have. And so that's, that's what we, that's what I want to, that's what I, the longer term vision. Uh, and we want to keep reminding people you know, that, that, that uh, food, insecu- food insecurity didn't happen because of the pandemic. We've had food insecurity long before the pandemic. And as I say, we're not going to feed our way out of, out of, you know, giving more food is not going to help food insecurity. It gives people food for today, but it's a longer term solution. We definitely want to see a reduction in food bank use. And we truly want to see every food banker wants to put themselves out of business. That's the truth, truth of it. And so that's, that's our long-term wish, a long-term goal. Our vision of our vision of food banks Canada is that Can- Canada where no one goes hungry. And that's, that's what we thrive for every day. And, and I know it, it is more of a recent appointment, but you know, you, you've had this corporate uh, career, this nonprofit uh, career. And as I said, in introduction, you recently appointed to the Canadian food policy uh, advisory 
council where you're going to bring a whole bunch of different groups together, um, which you know sounds admirable, but I, I have to imagine that it's also challenging. You're, you're bringing together a whole bunch of different groups. You're contributing what you know, and they're contributing what, what they know. How are you, you know, what are, what are your feelings as you, you go into it? it? It sounds like quite an honor, but, but I can only imagine that it's going to be a, a, a good deal of work. So it's just getting going. So I was honored, I was honored to be invited by the minister of agriculture to join her advisory council. And, um, you know, a lot of our, a lot of our funding, federal funding flows through the ministry of agriculture. So I was honored to be at, to be at the table, but you're right. There's many, many different parties, you know, from, from farmers to growers to, uh, dealing with indigenous affairs issues to dealing with food insecurity and so forth. So we're just, we're just getting going. Um, and so, uh, it, it's, it's, it's challenging working at the federal level. We, you know, we're coming up with ideas and advice for the, for the uh, Minister of Agriculture that she'll hopefully take back to the, to the House. Uh, and hopefully we see some things enacted into law. Um, and so, uh, again, we're just getting started. It's a, it's a privilege. And my, my group is looking at food insecurity. How do we measure it? Um, what goals we set around food insecurity nationally? And what, how are we going to measure our progress or lack thereof so that, against agreed-upon measures and agreed-upon measurement tool? Um, going forward. Uh, but we've got groups looking at food waste. Uh, we're looking at groups looking at how do we make farming an attractive uh, uh, a career for young people? Because um, a lot of the young people don't want to go into farming. Uh, it's hard work. And so how do we make it make it attractive? Um, you know, we're looking at import-export issues. We're looking at people's changing food habits in terms of, you know, meat and no meat and so forth. So, so it's a pretty, I'm having a great education. It's very broad brush. Um, and, and as I say, we're just getting, just getting started, uh, with, with the work, work at hand. <clears throat> I'd love to ask you to give some, some advice. So advice both to, you know, the, the Trinity student who wants to go and have a career in, in public service, but also advice to the, to the graduate, to the alum who wants to change his or her career. What's the advice that you would give to those, those two different groups? It's interesting, Paul, when I, when I told my friends, I was, you know, becoming the, you know, the executive director of the Mississauga food bank, they were so jealous. Some of my corporate friends were so jealous. They were, they were angry. They were so jealous that I kind of made the switch, if you would, and gone from one side to the other. Um, and so, so I thought that was very interesting. I would say a couple, couple of things, open comments to the, to the Trinity students is that, there's a lot of opportunities out there, broad opportunities. Don't just, don't just, don't just narrow yourself down to banking or, or being working in wall street or something very narrow. There's lots and lots of opportunities that you can take your skills to and your liberal arts skills are very valuable. Don't ever underestimate the value of your liberal arts skills, thinking, uh, trying to solve problems, being curious is critical to everything I've done. And I've always looked back upon my liberal arts education you know, driven. I'm still curious and you got to remain curious your entire career or your entire life. So that's critical. As I said before, um, the charitable sector needs people who think critically, who, who can solve problems, uh, who bring some sort of a, a business or an analytical background to it. And, and you'd be surprised how sophisticated uh, a lot of the charities are. Some of the big charities are very sophisticated, well-run uh, businesses, and you're also, also serving a cause. And so uh, if you're currently in the non-charitable sector, you know, next time you get an opportunity to go to the travel sector, give it, give it a shot. You know, like take a little risk. I think you'd be pleasantly surprised. They do pay salaries. They do have benefits. They do have pension plans and retirement plans. Um, you know, so, 
So it's not, I don't, I think some people think that they have to take a vow of poverty to work in the charitable sector. You don't have to take a vow, a vow of poverty to work in the charitable sector, I can promise you. Um, and there's going to be challenges there that are just as big as working in, in the corporate side. So uh, give it, give it a try and, um, and keep your horizon, keep your, keep your horizons open is what I'd say to both the alumni and to the, uh, and to, and to the, and the Trinity students as well. Chris, this has been great. Um, thank you very much for your time. Uh, but before I let you go, we end each of these uh, with a series of, of questions. It's called the Beyond the Summit Fast Five. Okay. And the only rule is don't think, just answer. Okay. okay. Are you ready? Go right ahead. Okay. Number one, what did you want to be when you arrived that first day at Trinity? I want to be the big man on campus. I want to know everybody and, you know, and meet, meet people and be friends with everybody. And, and so I want to, I want to, you know, I, I want to be known. I guess coming back as a German speaking Austrian rugby <laughs> player, your senior year, you, you kind of had a leg up there, right? That didn't hurt. <laughs> Num number two, what's one thing that happened at Trinity that your colleagues never knew about you? Hmm. I think that's a hard one. I pass on that one. <clears throat> Number three, when you look back on the narrative of your life, was there a moment at Trinity that was instrumental in you becoming who you are today? I think, well, I, I tell you something very vivid. I remember the very first day during matriculation. So I'm going back now to 1976, sitting in the chapel, and they said, look to your left. And look to your right, one of you won't be here come graduation in four years. And I remember, I remember that being a very sobering kind of this is like almost my first first week of school at Trinity and, and very, very sobering. And so I've never forgotten that. You know, you gotta kinda <laughs> gotta kinda hang in there, uh, be tenacious. So that was a that was a, le a life lesson in, in, in a way, if you will. <clears throat> Number four, what advice would you give to a current Trinity student? who aspires to have a career similar to yours? As I said, remain curious, be worldly. I mean, uh, you know, keep learning beyond, beyond, the, beyond, the, four, beyond the four walls of Trinity College. Um, so so keep, keep curious, keep learning uh, is what I would say to, to the students, absolutely. Okay. And number five, if the Trinity Bantam, our beloved mascot, was on the board of Food Bank Canada. What role would that bird have in advising you? Uh, he would say, "Don't forget your roots. Don't don't forget your don't forget your small college liberal arts kind of grounding." Uh, is what is what the bantam would be reminding me of uh, all the time. Don't forget where you don't forget where you came from. <clears throat> Chris, thanks again. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for having me, Paul. I appreciate it as well. It was a lot of fun. This episode of Beyond the Summit was brought to you by the Trinity College Office of Communications. Special thanks to Caroline DeVoe, Ellen Buckhorn, and Mary Mahoney for production assistance. This episode was produced by Helder Mira. A big thank you to Paul Sullivan, our alumnus host. The theme music, Winter in Liverpool by Mulaha, licensed by Musicbed. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.